Have you got your mojo working? Do you just want to give it a good kickstart? Either way, you've come to the right station. The Mojo Radio Show will help you get your mojo working at work and at play. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome aboard the big red bus. On the bus this week we have our Patreon supporters, the back of the bus, prime seats right next to the bar fridge. Welcome guys, nice to have you on board and thank you for your support of our show. If you are new to the show, and it seems we have people from all parts of the world each week that are discovering our show, what do we do here? Well, it really is quite simple. We just find interesting people, people that we think have got their mojo working in some aspect of life, business or play, and we just sit down, quiz them to find out what it is that they do that we can then take to apply to our own world to get our mojo working, or as you'll hear in this week's show, be of service to somebody else and help them. Because this week we're heading due north to, well, let's just call it being of true service town with a guy (laughs) who sold over one million books and they call him the go-giver. So we'll get into more of that in a second. Mm. Uh, The crew is all here. Uh, Robbo, you've got the bus in gear. Question, did you get fuel over the weekend? Uh, yeah, we've converted to bio oil. I meant to tell you too. We're uh, we're using old vegetable oil in the bus now. Okay, well, sounds like we need some more Patreon supporters, guys. <laughs> Things are getting a bit tight. <laughs> Robbo's remarkable facts. It's about time. Let's go. Uh, this week's show's all about being a go giver. So I kind of figured, what better way to start the show than to talk about the biggest giver? Well, uh, biggest gift that's ever been given. Any ideas what it might be? I'd be going Gates or Buffett, who's gifted. Billions to oh. world health issues. I would have thought. Yeah, that's that's charity. The Guinness World Record is to, per, talking about personal one-to-one gifts. So probably not a bad guess. But in the case of the Guinness Book of Records, it comes from India, and the title actually goes to Emperor Sahar Jahan, who had the Taj Mahal built as a tomb for his wife, who died giving birth to get this their seventeenth child way back in 1631. The 42-acre complex includes a mosque, a guest house and formal gardens and it also became Sahar's final resting place when he finally carked it a few years later. All up, the Taj, as we've come to know and love it here on the Mojo Radio Show, took 22 years to complete, employed some 20,000 artisans and cost more than 32 million rupees. That's the equivalent of about $916 million US in today's term. And the fact that he built it for his wife means that under the terms of the rules of the Guinness Book of Records, it qualifies as a gift, which means that the, at that price tag, it's going to take a lot of beating, I would think. And the good thing is the whole family listens to the show, so each week we are guaranteed <laughs> of 20 downloads. There you go, done. The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is Bob Berg. Now, Bob is a very well sought after speaker at company leadership and sales conferences right around the world, actually. And he works with and speaks for today's business leaders and even broadcast personalities right through to former US presidents. He's the author of a number of books on sales, marketing, and influence. His book, The Go-Giver, that I mentioned earlier, has sold almost a million copies in 28 languages. And it's a really interesting book because it's written as a parable. And 
I guess the basis of it is that Bob believes that the amount of money that one makes is directly proportional to how many people they serve. And from the get-go, Bob was introduced to us by our good mate in Canada, Ben Baker, who I've got to say, if we could do a whole season on just people that Ben Baker knows, he is He's so <laughs> dialed in and so linked in. He is, he? he is the go-to guy. So he introduced us to Bob, which is really good. So thanks, Ben, for doing that. So connected. And in fact, you know what's interesting? Ben Baker is the classic example of the go-giver in action, no doubt. He so, is, isn't he? With all that being said, Bob, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you. It's great to be here. When people ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Uh, you know, I don't make any big thing of it. I just really say that I'm an author and a speaker. I want to set this set this up with a passage from your very, very successful book. And this is, which we talked about at the top of the show, this is a fable. And the part I want to read to you, which I want to ask you about, is it says, if, if there was anyone at the Classen Hill Trust Corporation who was a go-getter, it was Joe. He worked hard, worked fast. He was headed for the top. At least that was his plan. Joe was an ambitious young man aiming for the stars. Still sometimes he felt as if the harder and faster he worked, the further away from his goals appeared. For such a dedicated go-getter, it seemed like he was doing a lot of going but not a lot of getting. That, when I read that phrase, that sounds like many of us, loads of us. Where, where essentially are you seeing that we're going wrong? Oh, that is such a wonderful question. So let's, let's really look at what we're talking about in that, in that passage. Uh, because a lot of people believe that a, a go-getter is the opposite of a go-giver. Which, which is actually not correct. Uh, if, we, if we begin with, with asking what really is a go-giver, it's simply someone who understands, who, who learned, or who maybe always intuitively knew, that shifting your focus from, and the focus is the key, shifting your focus from getting to giving. And when we say giving in this context, because I think it's, this is very important to clarify, uh, we simply mean constantly and consistently providing immense value to others, understanding that not only is this a, a more pleasant way of conducting business, it's actually the most financially profitable way as well. Not for some uh, woo-woo, way out there kind of reasons. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. Uh, and again, I, we'll, we'll circle back and look at why this is kind of important in terms of the question you asked. Um, it, it really makes very logical sense that that entrepreneur, that salesperson who can take the focus off of themselves and place it on making other people's lives better, uh, solving, help solve their problems, create value for them, uh, give them an advantage, what have you. That person, obviously, you know, people feel good about you. People uh, want to get to know you. They, they like you. They trust you. They want to be in relationship with you. Um, I often say when I speak at sales conferences that nobody's going to buy from you because you have a quota to meet. 
right? They're not going to, right? They're not going to buy from you because you need the money and they're not even going to buy from you because you're a really nice person. They're going to buy from you. They're going to do business with you because they believe they will be better off by doing so than by not doing so. And that's the only reason why anyone ever should buy from you or from me or from, from anyone else. Now, the good news about this is that that person, uh, that's again, that entrepreneur, that salesperson who can place their focus squarely on the other person, bringing immense value to them, that's the person who has created that context that people are going to want to buy from you. So with Joe, the, his problem was not that he was a go-getter. That's a good thing. Go-getters get things done. We love go-getters. Uh, you know, all, all three of us and everyone listening to this are business people. We know you can have the best thoughts, the nicest ideas, the greatest intent, but unless actions put into the mix, nothing's going to happen. So we love go-getters. Uh, we want people to be go-getters, people of action and go-givers, uh, people who are absolutely focused on bringing immense value to others. We would say the opposite of a go-giver is a go taker. And that's the person who feels almost entitled to take, take, take without having added value to, you know, the other person, the process, the situation. Joe was a go-getter, but he was also kind of a go-taker. His focus was on his quota. His focus was on what's in it for him. His, his focus was, I did something for you, you owe me, and, and so forth. And, and I think so what happens is when we say, so what is the, what are most people doing wrong? Or what, well, there's a lot of people doing things right as well. But I think when people are working very hard, when they're go-getters and they're not really producing, they're, they tend to be go-takers, not, not in intent. And it doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just human nature, right? You know, that, we, that we're looking at what, you know, we go into a sale and if we're thinking, Oh, I, I need the money. I better focus on myself and I better. Well, that other person, they're not buying because you need the money. And so I, I think that's really what it comes down to. And value, which can be defined as the relative worth or desirability of a thing, of something to the end user or beholder, um, you know, they're, if, if we're not focused on on how they see this on communicating this value to them, which comes not from talking, but from asking questions and listening, well, it's probably not going to happen. You know, it's interesting, Bob, this is a, you know, a very recent scenario that you, person could read your book, listen to podcasts, they can consume all this great knowledge about being a go-giver. They can even spruik to others about being of service to their client. Oh, I do care about my customer. But then- their actions and their decision-making process goes back to it's all about me. It's The conversation's uh, all I, 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 I. So regardless of how much they understand it and regardless of you sold a million books on this topic, people know it all. My question is you mentioned the word human nature. There's got to be a fundamental psychology has to shift here because it seems like we're consuming all this but it's not being turned into knowledge and or wisdom to actually put the rubber on the road and do it. Where, where is this breakdown in general with people? We can turn this psychology around 
to not just absorb this and listen to you, but actually go and do it and execute? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, again, another great, great question. Um, and, and first, let me just say, you know, there are a lot of people, uh, again, who are doing it right. And, and we hear about these people and we love knowing the example. So I, I never want to, you know, personally say, oh, you know, everybody's doing it wrong or this, you know. No, there's a lot of people doing it right. Um, but there are far too many people not doing it correctly, <laughs> right? And I think we all know that. And so when we talk <laughs> about human nature, let's look at that because it's very important. I think the understanding of human nature is one of the most important studies we can ever take on because it's only when we know it and understand it that we're in a position to be able to, to, uh, to, to deal with it effectively. Um, you know, human nature is simply the general, general psychological, uh, beliefs and feelings and actions of, of humankind, right? Uh, those things that are, that are pretty much shared by all humans. Uh, most of human nature goes back to the cave person days when everything was a matter of survival. And yet, even though we don't have those, those uh, life and death every day as a, a matter of survival challenges today, it's pretty much been hardwired into our DNA. And, and that's how we we operate now that you know that served us at a time when when it was life and death and we did have to survive the day that was that pretty much was the goal that was the short term and long term goal um, and and yet how many people still kind of run their lives this way but they do it unconsciously and and that's the key um, so I think successful people deal in truths they look at human nature as it is not as they wish it were. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be stunted by that. That doesn't mean they have to be stopped by that. No, what they do is they look at the truth for what it is, and then they work within the context of that truth in order to advance the world, advance themselves, advance those who they're serving, advance the, the people around them. So Harry Brown was a magnificent um, thinker and a doer, uh, he, he wrote a number of best-selling books. One was How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. One was, uh, or a couple were on economics, on investing, and a couple were on politics. I mean, he was just, a, he was a brilliant guy. But the best book he ever wrote, he never meant to publish. He wrote it back in the 1960s, and it was only after he passed back about, mm, I guess, about 12 years ago, that his wife, his widow, Pamela, found the... Um, manuscripts, two brief manuscripts on his hard drive. And she, she told another a person about it who is a direct uh, marketer. And he actually published it under the title of The Secret of Selling Anything. But what it was really about was it, the, the first part of it, the first brief manuscript, was on simply understanding human nature. That's what it was about. The second part of it was how to relate human nature to sales. And it's the most brilliant, brilliant book I've, I've ever read in my life, really. OK, uh, I did a, a review on it at, at my my blog, Berg, B-U-R-G dot com slash blog. And then you just put in the secret of selling uh, in the search or you can put Harry Brown, B-R-O-W-N-E in the search and you can you can read a, a review on it. Um, but he he based this his his understanding of human nature on three things. And these three go together. And if we understand these three, three aspects, these three parts we never have to be surprised by a decision that anyone ever makes again. The first is, number one, 
everyone seeks happiness. Okay, happiness being defined in this case um, as the mental feeling of well-being. Okay, so everyone seeks happiness. Now he he rarely used the words everyone or no one, and he mentions that when he's talking about this. But in this case, it fits because that is human nature. Everyone seeks ultimately. Everyone seeks happiness. Not no, we're not talking here about. A, a, a momentary pleasure or a joy. We're talking happiness. We're talking the mental feeling of well-being. Every decision we make is based on that. Now, individuals make mistakes. Not every action results in happiness, but that's every action is taken with that in mind. Number two, and this is key, happiness is relative. We all understand happiness differently as individuals. Thus, people place different values on different things. Uh, what one, what would make one person, what would bring one, uh, what would bring happiness to one person, might make someone else totally miserable, and someone else might not care. In sales, have you ever seen someone say to the prospect, "Oh, what I really love about this product is blah 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 blah"? And when I hear that, I think to myself, "Who cares what you love about it?" It's, it's what does, and I don't mean to be mean or snooty about it. I'm just saying you, what you need to find out is what do they love about it or, or what are they looking to accomplish that you can then share with them that this is a benefit that will, make, that will bring them closer to happiness. So, ha so everyone seeks happiness, but happiness is relative. Now, number three, resources are limited. Now, that's not to be mistaken with a lack mentality, not at all. We, we live in an abundant universe. But in terms of individually, we all have a limited amount of, of time. We have a limited amount of energy, a limited amount of wisdom, you know, a limited amount of money, a limited amount of. So because of this, people must make choices constantly during the day, small ones, big ones. Some of them consciously, most unconsciously. But every decision will be based on whether that person, again, consciously or unconsciously, believes that their decision will bring them closer to happiness based on how they understand happiness and with the, within the limited options they believe they have. And if you understand that, you basically understand human nature and and how or why someone will will do or not do something. That's gold. I think that's gold, Bob. Absolute selling oh, gold. You. Yeah, not not mine, of course. Harry, Harry Brown gets the credit. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Harry, Harry's, Harry's a big fan of the show, mate. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've just got a query for you to try and. We a couple of last season six, October, we interviewed a guy called Evan Hafer, who's the CEO of a very successful and growing company in America called Black Rifle Coffee Company. And they are doing incredibly well. And their mission is all about coffee and culture for people who love America. It's in everything they do. And when I spoke to Evan, he made the comment that many of the guys he served with were all about the mission. It was mission first. But the, every now and then you'd meet someone who was me first. He's built an organization based on mission first, not me first. And he recruits 
rewards and encourages people who want to buy into the mission. And the mission is first, me first, you're probably, it's probably not the right place for you. But they promote that mission internally as well as externally. It's almost like their positioning or their branding message externally through everything they do. My question is, I've heard you talk about the I focus or the me focus. So that situation where it's me, 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 I, 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 and you just mentioned we need to change that to the other focus. Do you think if somebody leads a company and or their own personal brand, it should start with a mission? Do you think it should start at a mission, which is about others? Would that be, in your mind, an interesting place to start for people based on... I guess the success of Black Rifle Coffee Company, which got me thinking about that, and we had a guy called Tate Fletcher on who said it's about being of service. Should that should that start with the mission of a company or an individual? Well, all things being equal, it, it seems it, it it seems it should. Uh, Lisa McLeod, a, a great author and speaker I know, calls it selling or leading with noble purpose. Right? Uh, she tells a story, and then we'll go back to the Black Rifle Coffee. Um, company, she tells a story about uh, being called in uh, to consult for a company. It was a uh, uh, pharmaceutical company. And and they wanted to know, they wanted her to, to kind of research why the top producers were the top producers. What were they doing that was that was different? What, what separated them? What was the determining factor? Because they knew many of the skills of the, the upper, you know, the top upper percentile were pretty much the same. And so she, she was speaking with one of them, uh, and, and she asked that she asked her, you know, what is it that has made you so special that has, has made you put you right at the top year after year? She says, well, you know, Lisa, she said, I used to think I was in the business of, of selling pharmaceuticals. She said, and then one day I was, I was at a doctor's office making a sales call. Uh, I, the doctor was busy, so I took a seat in the waiting room and a, a, a fairly elderly woman came over to me and she said, I just heard you introduce yourself to the receptionist and I thought I heard you say you're with the so-and-so company, whatever it was. And she said, yes, yes, I am. And she said, I've got to tell you that this drug, and I, I just don't remember what the name of the drug is, gave me my life back. Uh, you know, before then I was not able to play with my grandkids. I was miserable. I was always in pain. I was, and she went on, you know, a laundry list and she said, now she said, it's like my life. You've given me my life back. I mean, I play with my grandkids. I'm happy. I sleep. I'm blah, blah, you know, I mean, and what she said to, to Lisa was she said, you know, yeah, I used to think I was in the business of selling pharmaceuticals. Right. She said, but what I realize is I'm in the business of giving people their lives back. And so, you know, that gave her a whole new look at what she was really doing. And, you know, what it sounds like is the, is the uh, I guess, is the founder, the, the CEO of uh, Black Rifle Coffee has created a yeah. culture. Yeah, has created a culture where they are absolutely, they're, they're focused on, on sharing their higher purpose with everyone else. And the consumers who buy into that higher purpose are most likely going to be very, very loyal um, to them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it starts with what really are we bringing to other people? And, and that's, that's kind of where it begins. If I take you back a little ways in your journey, 
you're 35 years old and there's a moment that you realise that you have some character traits that are not serving you well. What was, what was a key trait that you knew at that time wasn't serving you well? How did you know? And then what did you do? So uh, there were a few, actually. And what happened was a, um, uh, one of my mentors, his name was, and again, he just he passed as well. Uh, his name is, was Charlie Tremendous Jones. In, in the States, he was one of the, the kind of the old guard inspirational speakers. I mean, he was just a magnificent human being. Uh, his major book was Life is Tremendous. And uh, a former insurance salesperson who kind of found his own way and then began teaching. Uh, just, uh, just such a great guy. And he, uh, he, he sent me a book uh, about a, a, a salesperson uh, who uh, the salesperson wrote a book. I read the book. And in the back, the, the, in the last chapter, the salesperson credited changing a bunch of his traits to a book he had read by Benjamin Franklin called the Autobiography. Uh, Benjamin Franklin being one of the U.S.'s you know major founding fathers, if you will, and a brilliant, brilliant man, an inventor, and and so forth. And so I, I told Charlie about this, and Charlie said, "That's one of my favorite books." He said, "I'm sending it to you right now, Berg." And he said, I want you to absorb every page. Well, I did absorb every page. But there was one chapter in particular from Ben Franklin that was a life changer for me. It was a game changer. It truly was. And that's where he talked about having, as you just so eloquently put it, certain traits in his life that were not serving him, thus not serving others. And if he, he knew that if he wanted to get as far as he could and realize his potential, he was going to have to make some changes in himself. Now, at the time, there was no, you know, Dale Carnegie self-improvement courses. That wouldn't come till about 200 years later or 150 years later. Uh, so he invented his own self-improvement course. And what he did is he listed 13 character traits that he felt he needed to change, weaknesses that he needed to turn into strengths. And he would spend one week, I should say invest one week, just absolutely focused on, on changing these, on, on these traits. At the end of the week, he would then move on to another, and then another, and then another. Now, he did this 13 weeks in a row, one week on each trait. Then he'd repeat it. For another 13 weeks and then again and then again now 13 times 4 are 52 there's 52 weeks in a year so doing his method his method you could go through the course four times and what he found is that by the time that year was up he had absolutely mastered a, a number of them some of them he did pretty good and some he had to keep working at so I decided to do the same thing because again I'm, I'm not much on you know I like to say I have never had an original thought in my life. Okay. But I am really good at studying those who have <laughs> and, and, um, learning their systems. I define a system as simply the process of predictably achieving a goal based on a logical and specific set of how to principles. The key being predictability. If it's been proven that by by doing A, you'll get the desired results, then you know that all you need to do is A and keep doing A and you'll get the desired results. So I did what Franklin did. Um, 
my first, and some of the traits were the same as his, others were, were um, individual to me. I began with gratitude because I realized um, that gratitude was something that I really didn't have. I really didn't have. Um, and I believe now that gratitude is is basically the one trait that makes happiness possible, right? Because you can have all the blessings in the world, and it doesn't have to be anything special. It doesn't have to be a yacht. I mean, just the fact, you know, you can walk or you can run, you can see, you can hear, taste, touch, smell, uh, that you have a roof over your head, that you have, you know, meals that that you can have, that you're in basically good health and, and so forth. I mean, there are so many things to be grateful for. But if you don't consciously focus on those, if you if you see the bad in everything and you don't live in gratitude, you just can't be happy. It's the same as not having those those blessings. So I focused on gratitude. That was the first thing. I, I just knew that was the first one that had to happen. And by the end of that first week, there was a big difference. Now, as you can imagine, though, even when you move on to the second one, uh, the first, you're still kind of working on the first one. It's still there, right? And you're, you're kind of going through that. But by the time I went through the course, I mean, through a couple of times, through, uh, there was a big change. That was something I continued to work on. And I, by the way, continue to work on it. But I got to tell you, it was a game changer for me. Game changer. Uh, it... it I made the decision to be happy, not happy if this happens or if that happens or whatever. I made the decision to have gratitude and, you know, my life just just changed. I want to tie a couple of things together because we've never, it's, it's really interesting. When you talk to very successful people like yourself, you've sold a million books, sought after speaker. I mean, you've had an amazing career and continue to, and people go, it's all right for him. But what people don't know behind the scenes, which you don't often speak of or mention, is the fact you've had to deal with OCD through your life, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I guess where I want to bring some of these things together, if you're happy to go there, is because we've never spoken to anybody with OCD before. I'm curious that when you you had that trait of gratitude, are you ever, do you ever sit with your journal? and look at OCD as a disorder that you're dealing with on a daily basis, are you ever grateful for it? No, I'm never never grateful for having OCD. Um, and, you know, OCD, just to clarify for people, you know, when people, so I don't know if they do it in Australia, but here in the States, people will, if, they're, if they are um, obsessive about something, they'll also say, they'll often say, oh, I'm so OCD about and what they mean is they have a habit of doing something or they're, they, they are, you know, that's not OCD. <laughs> OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is a chemical imbalance in the brain caused by a lack of serotonin. It's, its main characteristics are unwanted, immensely obtrusive and horrible, horrid, uncontrollable thoughts that are with you all the time. And the, the compulsions are the actions you take as if by magic, if I do this, then these, then this won't matter or won't count. It, it's difficult to explain, but I don't wish it upon uh, anyone. Uh, anyone who wants more information on it, it, it there, there are plenty of resources now, which there weren't when I was a kid. You know, I'm 62. This wasn't even named until I was 26. I just thought I was, you know, out of, out of my mind. But uh, there's the uh, OC Foundation, uh, o, um, 
think it's ocfoundation.org, and people can get information and um, and and determine, you know, if, if that's what they uh, at that. Yeah, it's i o uh, i o c d f dot org. I in like international i o c d f dot org, um, and they can get plenty of uh, there. But no, uh, I I've never never for a second said, oh, you know, I'm glad now. I accept it now. I accept that I have it, and I accept that there may be, you know, reasons for me to have it that I certainly can't understand. I'm sure it has made me much more compassionate for others and much more empathetic toward others. I think I have an ability to to understand people's emotional pain on a, a level that others don't. But if you were to say, well, Bob, you know, if you had the the ability to go back and say, well, you, it, you can you can have this great understanding of other people's pain and, uh, uh, and or not have OCD and probably not had the you know issues you've had in your life. What would you do? Would you be a hero and say, yes, I'll take the OCD so that I can be under more understanding? No, I wouldn't. I would. There's nothing about OCD I would want to have. But I do understand that I have it. And at that point, when I was, again, about 30, I think I was, I was just about 35, um, when I made that decision to be happy and have gratitude, uh, I know I, I didn't have gratitude for OCD, but I, but I had gratitude for everything else, for, you know, for, for those things that I could focus on and have gratitude. And there's a lot, you know, again, there's a lot to, to have it. And so while I realized politically correct, in the terms of political correctness, I should say, oh, yeah, oh, I'm glad I have it because it, no, not at all. You're a successful keynote speaker and you speak in front of big crowds, let's say 10, 15,000 people. And you've mentioned the fact that you can be on stage in the middle of a keynote and you start to have these OCD tendencies. And you just said it's a chemical imbalance. They're unwanted thoughts, which are dreadful and they're with you all the time. So you're in the middle of a keynote and for whatever reason, and and none of us would know what it feels like unless we have dealt with ourselves. So you're in the middle of a keynote in front of 15,000 people and you have this thought go through your mind. Now, people say it's a mindset. You can control your mind. You can control all these things. But what I'm confused about is this is a chemical imbalance and this is something that strikes and chemically there's something going on. It's not just your own thought patterns. I'm fascinated by... What do you do? How do you, because you said you continue to do what you do. How do you compartmentalize? What's your, what's your process for compartmentalizing? The uh, first, you know, when people say, and I've, I've always heard for years, the mind is the one thing you can control. Then obviously I can't relate to that. <laughs> you know, that's just not something. And I've talked to other people, uh, you know, some who've had OCD, but others who've had some other chemical imbalances that, that, that affected them in different ways. And, uh, and, you know, we've agreed that <laughs> no, that, that's just not something we can relate to for someone to just say, to control your mind. It's just not, not an option for, you know, for, for us. Um, so what does happen? Uh, I don't know about compartmentalizing, uh, compartmentalizing, uh, cause I'm not sure that happens. Um, it's, it's when it does, it's very, very uncomfortable. I, I, I try to make it so that I can give myself permission to come back to it later, to that thought, even though, of course, the logical thing would just be put the thought out of your mind and don't come back to it. 
but I realize that's not going to happen. So I have to kind of give myself permission to put it aside. But sometimes if it's a distressing enough thought and I have to go through some of the, 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 um, some of the things in my mind to kind of get rid of it. And again, it never does get rid of. That's the thing about OCD. It never does. It just, it, um, it, it just, it's very distressing right on stage. And, and I, I don't think anybody ever, ever knows, but, uh, but you know, it's something I've, I've had to deal with. Has that impacted your identity as a man, Bob? And it's just something I want oh, yeah. uh, with a as couple a of minutes being. to go. Is, is this, <laughs> how, how do you, how do you navigate that? You live your life despite it, and I and I've often said, and and obviously you've researched that. You know, you've done such a great job of research, so you've probably heard me say this on another interview that uh, that you're not a, a person is not successful because of OCD. A person is successful despite OCD. Whereas something like an obsessive compulsive personality. Okay, someone could be successful because of that, or at least successful in one area of their life, maybe financially, even if not in other areas. But but there are certain things a person could be obsessive about a certain thing, and they may be they may they may be successful in a certain area because they are so obsessed with it that they will just keep going till it happens. That again, that's probably not a comfortable way of living life, but you can actually succeed through that. But again, being obsessive or compulsive is not the same as having OCD. And if you have OCD uh, and you succeed, you succeed in spite of it, not because of it. Because I'm conscious of time, I've just got two That's final okay. questions, Bob, that, that uh, I'm a bit fascinated by. And one is we've had this thread through the show, gee, going back probably four seasons now, we spoke to a sports psychologist who started us on this this idea of identity. And it's something I heard you talk about that I'd like your thoughts on based on the go-giver, go-getter, you personally, what you've observed. And what I want to relate it back to is you said you like your baseball. And the analogy you used was <laughs> a professional hitter who walks up to the plate is different to the other guys in the team who just walk up to the plate. Their identity is different. A professional hitter has a different identity to the other guys in the team. Can you elaborate on that for me with how you see identity and how that creates intention and how that relates back to being a go-giver? Well, um, the professional hitter, and I'm not sure that's really an official term, but you hear it said about certain people in, in Major League Baseball here in, uh, in the States, that they go up to the plate in a different way than most other hitters do, even though, of course, the rest of the hitters are great too. I mean, that's why they're professionals. But, but the professional hitter, they go up there with a specific agenda. They go up there knowing what they're looking for. They go up there knowing everything about the pitcher in front of them. They know everything about what their own strengths and weaknesses are. Everything they are doing is just absolute intent and focus. Uh, I think that as a salesperson, when you have an absolute focus, let's say, again, we go back to that other focus. When you have an absolute focus on making the lives of those you serve better, you separate yourself from every other sales professional. Now, again, human nature says that we are, we are self-interested. 
Okay, so uh, again, it goes back to the the old days when survival was the key. So to say that a salesperson, well, this salesperson is not self interested, uh, no, that's denying human nature. Okay, and and again, uh, successful people don't deny truth. They 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 first understand the truth. They embrace the the understanding of that truth, and then they work within it in order to. But what the great salesperson will do is they'll say, okay, yeah, by nature. I am eye focused. I'm 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 self focused. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm not going to try to deny this because that would be denying truth. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to set aside that self interest. I'm going to temporarily suspend that self interest. That I can do in order to absolutely laser focus on this person in front of me and discovering what they want what they need, what they desire, how, can I, how I can help them solve their problems and, and, and so forth. And that would be, that would be the sales um, uh, colleague of the professional hitter. If we talk about the salesman, you've talked about that one of your heroes was a guy called Og Mandino, who was one of the great <laughs> American authors. Yeah, uh, yeah. You've actually shared a stage with Og Bandino before he yeah. passed in 1996. Yeah. He wrote a wonderful book, which I think anyone of a generation like ours, Bob, probably has a copy of The Greatest Salesman in the World in our bookshelves. He was your exactly. hero. And I want to paraphrase James Lipton from Inside the Actors Studio, who's one of the great interviewers of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If heaven exists and you walk through the pearly gates when it's your time, and you walk in through the gates and you bump into Og Bandino. <laughs> What's the greatest compliment that he could give you as a man? Oh, boy. And, you know, and it would have to be different from just, hey, I remember seeing you on stage uh, when you opened for me 50 <laughs> years ago. You know, hey, but, you look good. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 you still look good, yeah. Um, gosh, you know, I mean, I would have to say that maybe if he said to me, you know, Berg, you lived the principles from the greatest salesman in the world, right? Uh, you, you know, you you brought value to others. You did those things that I that I talk about in that book, and, and that would be a, a pretty terrific compliment. But wouldn't that be a lovely compliment for all of us, Bob? With any book we read, to actually take the learnings. And we had a guest on the show called Cameron Schwab, who's a famous football administrator here in Australia. And he said we need to curate our learnings. But how often do we consume, which goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show, we consume all this stuff. But isn't it a nice thing that, that, to know that that book that long ago was consumed by you, but you turned into knowledge. By sharing it to others, it became wisdom. And he went, yeah, mate, you did a good job of that. Wouldn't that be just be such a, a great thing to leave our children, to not just, not just read a, a book or watch a video, but actually absorb it and then go and walk in those shoes? Yeah. Oh, very much so. Here's an interesting uh, fact that remember I was talking about Charlie Jones earlier, who was, uh, again, one of my mentors. Well, Charlie and his Life is Tremendous was his main book. That was the one that kind of put him over the top. The person who discovered Charlie was Og Mandino. Og was the uh, editor at the time for Success Magazine. He read Charlie's book and he serialized the book. And he's the one that put Charlie on the map. And then Charlie became one of the big you know, speakers in the world. So it, it's so interesting how you uh, brought that up about Og. There's a full circle for us. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed the book and I know I'm running out of time and I'll probably push, push my friendship a little bit too far with you already. No, <laughs> you go, you go right the book, That's okay. 
the book has sold, okay, let's, let's say it's closing in on a million copies. And I've heard you recite and you've mentioned Dal Carnegie on the show, who's a fan of yours, Ogmandino, Harry <laughs> Brown, Charlie Jones, Robert Caldini was someone that you admire and you love his work on influence. So you've got all these people. Some of these guys date back to the, the 60s. You know, Caldini was 2006. Dal Carnegie was 1936. And then you said, I've never had an original thought. Yet the book is kind of all these lessons you've taken that I could get elsewhere. But the Go-Giver book has just been so overwhelmingly successful. Why is that? Why is that, Bob? When I can get the lessons back to 1936, why do you think the book has had such a profound impact? Well, one reason is that it's, in, you know, that is a parable. It's in story form, which, which I think connects on a deeper level with people, on a heart level, than does a how-to book, which were all of my books before the Go-Giver series. The greatest thing I did for the Go-Giver was, was asking John David Mann to co-author it with me, because John is the lead writer. You know, I'm a, I'm a, as you can tell just from speaking with me, I'm step one, step two, step three. Uh, John is a magnificent storyteller. So the fact that he was the lead writer, that that right there made it a very readable book. But I think the real reason that people uh, took to this book was it, and again, as you said, and as we've been saying, nothing nothing new about it, right? Nothing new about the principles. Um, but they kind of said to people, you know what? You can be a really good person and you can really do things the right way and be successful. There's no treacherous dichotomy. Okay. There's no, you know, uh, there's no, Oh, you have to be this or this or that if you're going to make a lot of money. No. And we would say you don't, you, you don't, um, succeed in spite of being a person who brings value to others. You succeed because your focus is on bringing immense value to others. And most people who are in sales, who are entrepreneurs, they want to make a contribution. They want to make a difference. Uh, yeah, financial success is very important. It's one aspect of success. There's financial, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, social, relational, all sorts, okay? Uh, and financial success is very important. But even more important to most people is is being part of something, making a difference. It's it's having that, as Lisa Mc, Earl McLeod says, having that noble purpose uh, and, and, and adding value to people's lives. And I think the book said, yeah, that's pretty much how you do it. Focus on bringing value to the lives of others. And money is an echo of value, right? Focus on bringing immense value to others. And the money you receive is a direct and natural result of that value you're providing. And I think that was a message that people were looking for. And I, I think they, they you know, uh, thankfully they embraced it. Do you know it's funny, Bob? I just got one final thing to, to bring up with you, but it's funny. I, I, I've listened to, and you've done a thousand podcasts and I've listened to 20 hours. Boy, you're amazing. That's, that's why you're so successful that you... Uh, well, and I, I took a lot of notes and everything else, but then I read the book and I've got to say, there was, there was just this moment where I felt like there's a character in the book who's a mentor and I felt like Pindar put his arm around me and said, listen, son, there was a moment where the book as a parable 
immediately. It just has a different impact on how you learn than actually hearing it or absorbing it elsewhere. And I've got to say there is something about this book that just helps the learning process where you feel like there's this guy who just says, I get it. I get where you're coming from, Joe. Just let me come over here. Let me put my arm around you and, and take you on a journey. However, what I want to know is you hit a half a million copies and your publisher portfolio said, can you do a little extra with the book? Let's republish it, do a little extra. And you said, well, it's a parable. I can't really change the story. <laughs> right. now, now you've done close to a million. You've done a thousand podcasts. You've met a bajillion people, which is more than a billion. And <laughs> what happens when you're a successful author, I'm told, <laughs> is that People come and tell you their story and they want to share what they've done. And it becomes I, 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 and hey, here's my. And you hear all these things now for the last decade, decade and a half. If I put you on the spot and said, from all you've learned from doing the book, you're about to write the sixth law of stratospheric success. With all you've learned, and I know you're a thoughtful guy, what would you write or give me as the sixth one to the parable? I think what I would probably say is just to, the, the, the sixth law, if there was one, would be to make sure that, and I don't know how we'd phrase a sixth law, so we'd have to come up with an actual name for it, but it would have to be around making sure that everything you do is congruent, you know, maybe it would be, be congruent with your values, understanding that that's the the highest uh, form of, of action. Uh, I, you know, I often say when we talked about happiness being the mental feeling of well-being, and that is the di- dictionary definition, and that, I think that's a fine definition. I, I sort of take happiness a little bit, um, I expand on it a little bit, I would say. I define happiness as an ongoing and genuine feeling of joy and peace of mind the result of acting congruently with one's values, okay? So in other words, you, you, I would say that you cannot truly be happy if you're doing things that are incongruent with your values. Um, so I, I would say if there was going to be a sixth law, it would, it would be that, and we'd find some way to have someone uh, make a lesson on it. Gold. That's gold. Absolute gold. Act in accordance with your true values. I think that's um, a little bit of Berg. Can we call you Berg? Sure. (laughs) Are we we mates enough to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. There is, there's, just to wrap this up, there is a passage in the book that Pindar, who I mentioned briefly before, who's the mentor, talks about some of the famous people he's met. And he said that the majority of people operate with a mindset that says the fireplace, first give me some heat, then I'll throw on some logs. Whereas the go-giver is, is the opposite. That it's, it's, the, it's the complete polar opposite, is first throw some logs and then you're going to get some heat and some fire out of it. Can you, with all you've done, Bob, if you were to give us a gift that you don't often talk about and have never written about, but it's something that you've been pondering for some time, that is something that in your heart you know is of value to people, if they want to throw a few logs on to make a difference to themselves and, more importantly, the world, throw us a log. What, what would you say is the thing you've been pondering in your heart that would make a big difference to people? Well, I would say in these days, in, in what are 
times where where um, politically, certainly, and in other ways, there is such opposition uh, to one another. I, I don't know how it is in the, the beautiful land down under, uh, but here in the states, there is just the the political bickering is is so so bad. Uh, I, I always used to say that the the um, you know it used to be when people discussed politics and you know the two basic opposite sides. Okay, uh, it used to be I'm right, you're wrong, which is you know is never a great spot to begin with, but it was workable. Because if you believe that you are right and the other person's wrong, again, while it's not ideal, you'll still engage with that person. Why? Well, because you may you feel they're wrong, but that doesn't mean they're a bad person. It means they're they're misinformed, and you want to inform, right? And you and, and so forth. Again, not the best way to, to begin, not the best premise to begin with, but it, it was doable. I'm right, you're wrong. Now it's different. Now it's I'm right, you're evil, and. When you believe that the other person is evil, you will not engage with them. Why would you engage with someone who's evil? They're beyond redemption. There's no hope for them. They're evil. They can't, right? And the other side of that is if someone believes that you believe they're evil, they won't even try to engage with you. So what I would like for people to see if I was going to say anything that would you know, be for the, the modern times – is to really check your premises and understand that by and large, and by the way, not that there isn't evil in the world, and some people truly are evil, but far, far fewer than what we think, okay? Uh, you know, it's a big world. There's always going to be those, but no, most people, and, and I know people on both sides of the political spectrum, most people are not evil. <laughs> right, they 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 want basically the same things, the same results. They just see two very very different ways of of, of going about it. Uh, okay, but if you can just check your premises and understand that that person who disagrees with you is doing so because that is their personal belief system based on their not even being aware of it when it was given to them. <laughs> there, a, a belief system is based on everything from upbringing, environment, schooling, news media. You know, I mean, everything. The, 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 all these things that you get, and, and you, you start to form your 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 core beliefs before you're even a toddler. Okay, and by that time, you pretty much grow up with a a belief system that's that's almost set in stone. Okay, not necessarily, but almost. And people operate from what I call an unconscious operating system. They think they're operating out of free will when really they're operating within a, uh, you know, a frame of certain acceptable ideas. So if you're going to, if you want to persuade, if you want to influence others, you've got to first look at them as being well-intending human beings, even if you truly believe they're wrong. And, you know, I, I often say, when you engage with them, engage tactfully and kindly. Tact and kindness should never be confused for compromise. We can always speak tactfully and respectfully to others without compromising on our values. Bob, you've been very generous with your time. I've gone way, way over. I, I was thinking of you during the week as I was getting ready and looking forward to talking to you that I was on the phone with a guy and his words were, man, I hate sales. 
I absolutely hate marketing. And the reason I thought of you is because by reading the, the Go-Giver, the parable, and hearing you talk, I think the real, one of the real powers for us, and it goes back to identity, we talk about the professional hitter and, and so on, is that you help people reframe how they look at this vital and, and totally necessary part of our world, whether it be in a social aspect, whether it be in a community aspect or a business aspect. It's actually helping us reframe those two attributes. And I've got to say, I think the parable, which is it's such a powerful tool today because it's short, it's very readable, but the messages are very profound. It's easy to see why there is so much resonance with that particular book. Thank you. I appreciate that more than you know. Thank you. And, you know, regarding the people who say they hate sales, I tend to think they most people who say they hate sales don't really hate sales. They hate what they think sales is. I'm one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, where um, where are we going to find you, mate? Where, where's the best hub for people who want to look up more? I'll put that link for the OCD into the show notes for people. Where oh, thank you. For Bob Berg. All your work, where where should they go? Where's the hub? Yeah, uh, best is just Berg, B-U-R-G dot com, and they can scroll down the page. There are plenty of uh, resources that they can check out and have some fun with. So, yeah, Berg.com would do it. As Leonardo da Vinci said, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Berg.com. <laughs> Love it. Uh, exactly. Mate, uh, <laughs> if you ever... If you ever head down under, uh, Robbo would like to invite you to Bondi Beach. We have a mobile outside broadcast set up because we're ex-radio guys. We would like to host you on the beach, on the promenade, in front of the famous well, Bondi. Well, hang on, Life Barry. Hang Tower. on, Gary. I think there's a better location for this one. Da- down, at, down at Bondi, there's actually a really well-known classy restaurant called the Bondi Icebergs. Oh, gold. <laughs> so gold. I think that might be the place. <laughs> it's a bird. So if you're, if you're down under, we'll, we'll continue this conversation, Bob. It's been, it's been an absolute joy. It's been a real treat. Thank you for being so giving with your time. You've been very, very generous. Thanks, mate. Uh, pleasure's mine. Thank you both so much. The Mojo Radio Show. What did you get out of it? I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. What's the so what? You know, it's it's interesting when you hear a guy like Bob who is speaking to audiences all over the world, to millions of people, and he sold a million books. Mm. Isn't it funny when you hear the humility of a guy like that who says, I've never had an original thought, yet what he's done is he's put the thoughts of others together in a very unique way mm. that has now helped over a million people. And when when Bob was talking, it made me think of a saying by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is back in the early 1900s, 1936. He said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Hmm. And it's almost hearing Bob talk about this is you have to... You have to suspend what you know to entertain something new. And in his case, he put it together in a new way. But the thing, the, the real thing I took from Bob, apart from his humility and the fact that the parable is, it's so easy to read, but you can hear a million interviews, but when you hear the parable, the way he puts it together, it's very, very powerful, 
He sold a million books. I wonder how many people have actually prioritized and executed the messages in the book. Because it's like Morpheus from Matrix said to Neo, there's a difference. Someday you will come to understand, like I did, that there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. And I guarantee so many of us have got that book in our cupboard. We go, yeah, it's really good. Hear the podcast. I'm just hoping that people who listen to this show, all of us, all of us, take the lessons and execute it straight away. And <laughs> how cool when you go walk into heaven, you see Ogmandino, your hero, what would you want him to say? <laughs> he said, you did a good job <laughs> of taking out what I wrote and doing it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Isn't it? Because yeah, we're after the next, the next podcast, the next book, the yeah. next YouTube click. You come on yeah. the show and talk about all these great things, but you go, well, we've got all these things. What are we doing with them? Like, what that's are right. we actually executing. And it goes all the way to Cameron Schwab, a guest of our show, who said, curate your learnings, put them in your journal and note them somewhere, and then execute. And I just hope, that I thought, Bob, that show was really quite powerful, but mm. I just hope people will start to think of someone else set themselves when they leave the show today mm. uh, and follow Og and Bob and Benos. It's really good. Just quickly, too, as an aside, in your intro, you mentioned um, Ben Baker and his LinkedIn prowess. I've got to say, Ben is probably one of the best users of LinkedIn I have seen in the seven or eight years I've been on there. He's he's really an incredible user of LinkedIn and so, uh, well, so giving in his approach to using it, too. I think people should probably get on LinkedIn, look up Ben Baker, just put in Ben Baker, I guess, Canada. You'll find him easy enough. I don't know how many Ben Bakers there were because Ben approached us. You'll find him, but he's uh, he's a great case study in go-giver using LinkedIn and just just a cool guy. Hey, I'm David Koska, international security expert and tactical trainer. After spending time on the Mojo Radio Show, I'll be filing my own report. This is something I found, which I, I reckon there's a lot of our show in this, not that it's music-based or a music artist, but I, I find this to be a great example of prioritizing and executing. Now, I don't know, are you a, are you a Kanye West fan? Uh, I'm not a fan, but I know his music fairly well through my radio work, yes. So I'm not. Mm-hmm. However, I do admire this story about him. He's about to unveil his newest iteration of creativity, mm-hmm. and it's a, a range of clothing called Yeezy Supply. Now, I understand it's been done in conjunction with the Gap, the Gap Clothing Company, who are really, really struggling. And they're going to sell it through a website that features his collection of shoes, clothes, and accessories. But what's interesting about this, which I really admire, is that even the website has been innovated and he didn't want to do the normal shopping experience. So he decided to do it in a different way. So he took, basically what you do is you, you pick an outfit then you put on a 3D model who walks across the screen. Mm. And then you actually get to know who that model is because they've written these kind of backstories like that him or her favourite food or significant life experience. And where it's, it's, and, and I don't know this is the right thing to do, but I admire not the outcome, but I admire the process, which is what Logan Gelbrick said. Don't get caught up in the outcome. But think about the process because this website has no words on the screen. So the overall aesthetic is it's like a video game set up 
kind of like a, I don't know, a medical supply store. <laughs> and there's, he's doing it in, with a guy called Nick Knight, who is his creative partner, who I think is a photographer. And they're trying to make the internet a more humane place. So they went back and looked at all the functionality of the normal e-commerce sites on the web, all the, they called it lo-fi, the stuff that's the basic online shopping experience and worked out that online shopping should not be headed in that direction because most shopping sites are very generic. So regardless of who you've got, it's all stuff that's the same navigation tool, the same way the stuff is presented. So they tried to go through with this Yeezy supply to basically experiment to say, how would you break all the rules that constitute a functional, well-designed, typical or common website? What I like about it is the story I read, I think it was the New York Times or, or Forbes, that said, this is typical of the classic contrarian Kanye West. So he's just got this reputation for wanting to be disruptive not wanting to be common, but instead being uncommon. So he's created this Yeezy supply, which has got these 3D images of models that look like game avatars. They walk on the screen and you pick out the clothes and basically drag them on. And then they've got backstories. They might be a nurse or a firefighter. or They're people, but they've got this narrative that sits behind it. I, I think this is fascinating. I like the idea that Kanye West has this identity. It's in his DNA to be contrarian, to look at everything and say, how do I do this differently? What else could I do? And like him or Hades music or anything else, you have to admit he's actually been pretty successful. But I think this speaks to a lot of don't be common, be uncommon, but it all goes back to your identity. And then your identity speaks to the habits that you apply to not just some parts of your world, but every part of your world. So I'm not saying we need to play any of him. No, let's not. But I do think this would be one for a, for, for a fair bit. It's just one for all of us to watch. It's called Yeezy Supply, Y-E-E-Z-Y Supply. Yeah. You find it online. Just keep an eye out for what he does with this thing. He's, a, he's an interesting guy in general, Kanye. He's, he's done a lot of stuff like this uh, over the years. And, um, yeah, I think that's probably a bit of a reflection about what he's like. It's not just about his music for him. It's about all sorts of things. I think it's really cool. Hey, uh, just Is he the quick... one married to one of the Kardashians? Yeah. I, can't, I, I don't follow the Kardashians, but yes, the one with the big oh. lips. Yeah. I can't remember. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just quickly, uh, while you're on innovation, we've been talking a bit over the last couple of weeks about- They've all got big lips. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the- <laughs> We've been talking a bit about the last few weeks about innovations that have come from COVID-19 and just purely by chance I came across a couple during the week that I thought were really interesting from the food industry and the first one, believe it or not, comes from KFC or I think they're now going back to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Anyway, uh, regardless, one of their stores in Russia has gone completely contactless. So when you're in the mood for a bit of chicken grease, you go into their store and use the computerized ordering system that we're probably all familiar with seeing at McDonald's and those sort of places these days. But it's what happens after that that's really remarkable. The only staff in the restaurant and that's probably a loose term, are in the kitchen and they receive and box up your order as usual. But rather than bringing the food to the counter, your tray's put on a short conveyor belt that takes it to a robotic arm behind a row, a row of lockers with glass windows on the front. 
Now, when your order's ready, the light under the locker number you've been given lights up and you use the pin that was also provided to open the locker and grab your food. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, And in a really similar way, there's a restaurant in the Netherlands that has employed three robots named Amy, Aker and James who deliver your food and drinks to the table after you've ordered it on the iPads that are provided when you're seated. And you can also interact with your waiter through a touchscreen on their belly. So, I mean, I know it's probably not off the scale wow, um, but it always makes me stop and think that without COVID-19, none of this stuff would have ever happened. Well, I guess the other question is, do we need it to happen? So, yeah, it'll be the, the, at the back end of this thing, what warrants staying and what warrants going? Well, I guess from a, the KFC point of view, I'm sure the, uh, there'll be some restaurateurs who'll look at the savings involved of a robot delivering your food to the... Uh, to the front of house, I guess. You think it, but how often do you say it? What were they thinking? North Coast Organics have released a Grateful Dead branded line of deodorant. <laughs> right. The question is, if you could smell like any band, which one would it be? Jesus, <laughs> Motley Crue. Of course, for our show, it would be Nirvana because you would smell like Teen Spirit. Uh-huh. But that's weird, isn't it? Very good. It that just is, is weird. Yeah. Why would you Why would you release a Grateful Dead brand mm. of deodorant? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Uh, one quick thing. I got a note during the week from a school teacher who had listened to the David Rendell show a couple of weeks back. And David was the guy who wrote Freak Factor. And he just wanted to thank us and say, fantastic show. And he's a school teacher and he's already used it in the classroom. And he's also used it with the parents of some of the children in his classroom. He said in his term was, mate, it was gold. So there you go. That was a great show. David Randall, Freak Factor, one worth catching up with. We are out of here. Mm. To close the show, did I I hear some country music as (laughs) we came into the studio this morning? What's going on there? That's unusual Uh, for you. Some big news, and and you'll probably laugh at me, but Voodoo Sounds picked up its first country music radio station to do imaging for. So so that was probably why you were hearing a bit of Garth Brooks and God knows what else as you were walking down the hallway this morning. Yes, uh, hello to the folks at... uh, HCN 88.8 in Minnesota. Welcome aboard to the uh, Voodoo Sound family. Well, I heard MTV are opening a country channel in Australia. There you go, mate. Nickelodeon. Oh, really? And wow. yeah, the whole family of MTV, uh, some the Redstone, are opening up a country station. So the country's taking over the world. However, we're going to finish <laughs> with the country. This is... This is the guy, the lead singer is a recognised voice. He is the lead singer of Leonard Skinner and this band is called Van Zant. This is a little bit of country in honour of Robbo picking up a country station. That won't last long. And <laughs> uh, we, haven't played any country on the, on the, we haven't played any country on the show for a while. <laughs> so this is Van Zant and ties back to being a go-giver, help somebody. We're out. I can't even bag it anymore. Well, granddaddy was a hillbilly scholar, blue collar of a man. He came from the school where you didn't need nothing if you couldn't make it with your own two hands. He was backwards, backwards, use words like no sir, yes ma'am, by God be darned. Hell yeah, I'm American. 
In all the years he walked this earth, I swear all he did was work. He said the devil dreams on an idle horse, so you listen to me squirt. Don't get too high on a bottle And get right with a man Fight your fights, find a grace And all the things that you can't change And help somebody if you can Now Granny said, Sonny, stick to your goodness If you believe in something no matter what Cause it's better to be hated for who you are Than be loved for who you're not She was five feet of concrete New York born and raised on a slick city street She cold stare you down, stand her ground Still kicking and screaming at 93 I remember just how frail she looked In that hospital bed Taking her last few breaths of life Smiling as she said Don't get you high on a bottle Just a little sip every now and then Fight your fights, find the grace And all the things that you can't change And help somebody if you can And get right with a man Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. 
To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.